Section 94 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Theosophy. Its Pretensions. Theosophy is the only system of thought that furnishes a key to the mysteries of human life and explains the presence of evil in the world. The number and the respectability of its adherents, and the wondrous power displayed by some of them, are no small argument in favor of the intrinsic value of the system. Their value. Theosophy abounds in absurdities, and its miraculous pretensions are a species of imposture. Unfortunately, it has a sufficient number of fairly respectable adherents to justify a notice of the system in our pages. Theosophy as a public cult dates from the establishment of the Theosophical Society, founded in the city of New York in 1873 by Madame H. P. Blavatsky and Colonel H. S. Olcult. Madame Blavatsky had been initiated in the occult sciences in the East, and had made an unsuccessful attempt to found a spiritistic society in Egypt. The Theosophic system was modified and developed by Madame Besant, who was once associated with Mr. Bradlaugh in the propagation of atheism. Theosophy acknowledges no intelligent or personal supreme being. It substitutes for such a being an indefinite something, sometimes called the infinite mind or the great reality, but it might as well have been called by any other name, as it has no positive attributes of any kind. From the great reality all things emanate. The human soul comes forth from it as a spark issues from a fire. In the course of time the soul finds its way into a human body, which, however, is only its temporary dwelling place, as it is destined to animate other bodies before it finishes its career. The soul and the great reality are but one divinity, but the soul does not at once attain to a full realization of the divinity. This it will achieve by a series of reincarnations. According to theosophists, a man's future is entirely in his own hands, but, in this sense, that his merits or demerits in his present incarnation will settle his status for the next one. This is affected by the blind but inevitable operation of a law, the law of karma, as they term it, by virtue of which a man's deeds cling to his soul in the shape of thought forms, and are landed with him in his new stage of existence in a new body. In his second life, he will find himself at the start, virtuous or vicious, fortunate or unfortunate, happy or unhappy, according to his deserts in a previous state of existence. It is for him to work out his salvation, that is, to make provision for his next incarnation, for when he arrives at it, he will find his ledger account carried forward and ready to accompany him on his new journey. Finally, when his virtues have ripened to perfection, he is absorbed back into the great eternal blank from which he originally came. Theosophy is, therefore, a form of emanational pantheism, as well as a form of atheism of the Buddhistic type. The space we can allow ourselves in this article will only permit us to indicate a few reasons why this strange creed should be rejected by every sensible mind. 1. Theosophy cannot be established by proof. Scarcely any attempt has been made to prove its tenets save by an appeal to its supposed aptitude to explain the presence of evil in the world, but more on this anon. 2. Theosophy bristles with absurdities. In the first place, the great reality is nothing in particular in itself. How, then, can it be the cause of all things that exist? Reason tells me that before a thing can be the cause of another thing, it must have a definite and determinate mode of existence itself. 3. As the soul is identical with the divine reality, both its good and its bad instincts must be ascribed to the divine. Hence, when virtue struggles with vice, it is divinity struggling with divinity. This is all the worse, as theosophists represent the divinity as absolute perfection. 4. Theosophists speak of duty and obligation, and yet one would search in vain in their system for any principle on which duty or obligation could be based, or for any higher power to which duty is owed. 
The one motive for the performance of duty is a practical, calculating self-interest, and as for the moral relation of the soul to the infinite, the one has no more obligation to the other than a spark has to the bonfire from which it has escaped. 5. There are honest and clear-headed theosophists, however, who admit that, strictly speaking, duty has no place in their system. Right and wrong, accordingly, are only convenient terms used instead of the more correct expressions upward tendency and downward tendency. Why the distinction should be between up and down any more than between right and left, or between plus and minus, we cannot see. But, that question apart, one thing is certain, there must be a dividing line between the two things. In other words, there must be an absolute standard or law of morality, if morality is the right name for it, by which the will may be effectually moved. If a theosophist tells me, the right thing for you to do is to tend upward, I ask him, why? His answer is that it is the way to the perfection of my being. My rejoinder is that seeking the perfection of my being is only a matter of self-interest and is quite outside the moral sphere. It furnishes no motive belonging to the moral order. And even supposing that up and down were moral ideas, what criterion does theosophy furnish whereby to distinguish up from a down? The two are well distinguished in the Ten Commandments, but theosophy has had no Mount Sinai of its own. The truth is that theosophy, at bottom, recognizes no moral order of any kind. Even self-interest cannot be very cheering to the man who is struggling upward when he reflects that when he reaches absolute perfection, all personality and consciousness in him will be destroyed and become identified with the great nothing in particular. Thus, successive degrees of perfection bring him to nothing. Cold comfort, this. 6. Physical evil overtaking the individual man is supposed to be the consequence of sins committed by him in some previous incarnation. In other words, the multitudinous workings of natural laws, which are the cause of physical evils, are brought into perfect correspondence with the equally multitudinous workings of the human will, which is the author of sin. If a man sins, the laws of nature are so adjusted as to bring it about that in his next incarnation he will be born, say, to poverty instead of wealth. This amounts to saying that laws that are regular and inflexible are made to dovetail with the fitful and arbitrary and incalculable operations of the human will. Now, since nice adjustment as this is only possible on the supposition that there exists an intelligent personal deity who has a foreknowledge of the two orders of events and is able to adjust the one to the other. But no such deity is acknowledged by the theosophist. Hence, he is logically driven either to abandon one of the most distinctive elements of his system or to deny the freedom of the human will. 7. Yet it is just this attempt to account for physical evil, especially human suffering, that has attracted to theosophy a certain type of Europeans who would otherwise condemn this modern adaptation of Buddhism as an effet superstition. These converts to theosophy tell us that they are dissatisfied with the Christian explanation of human suffering. The Christian holds that suffering is permitted by God for our greater good, especially in the life to come. He regards the very worst afflictions of the present life as perfectly insignificant, both in intensity and in duration, as compared with the smallest portion of bliss and life eternal. Meanwhile, there is a superabundance of divine grace at hand to console, strengthen, and encourage him, and to enable him to convert his sufferings into occasions of merit for eternity, and that too notwithstanding that many of his sufferings may be the fruits of sin. But the theosophist prefers cutting the knot to untying it. He gets rid of a personal god altogether and then consoles himself with the thought that he has no one to blame for his sufferings but himself. He attributes all the vicissitudes of life to a law of blind necessity, a law, nevertheless, which contrives to act as an engine of retribution. But whilst drugging his mind with the new doctrine, he shuts his eyes to its real contents. We have seen above some of the doctrinal absurdities which the theosophist is made to swallow. 8. 
But apart from these, and taken as an explanation of temporal suffering, the system breaks down utterly when applied to the facts of human life. Theosophy attributes pain and poverty in the individual to sins committed by him in previous states of existence, the law of karma working with mathematical exactness and landing him, at each fresh incarnation, in the precise groove in life which his merits have entitled him to occupy. Well, let us apply the doctrine to a case like this. A man during the first forty years of his life is healthy, wealthy, and wise. Virtue within and good fortune without make his life an ideal one. Suddenly, he is overtaken by a malignant disease which makes his life utterly miserable. Has karma blundered? That man came into his present existence with a diploma entitling him to a life of happiness, and forty years of virtue have given him a claim to additional happiness. Why, then, is he treated as a felon? The Christian has some explanation for the case of this sufferer, but the theosophist is stranded. The opposite case of forty years of suffering, followed by a period of fairly good health, is equally inexplicable on theosophical principles. Then again, how can theosophy explain the fact that physical well-being and moral well-being, though both are supposed to be the effect of karmic retribution, are not always found in each other's company at a man's start in life? Many a child is born at once to wealth and to what are called inherited vicious propensities. It is easy to weave theories, but not so easy to make them square with the facts of life. 9. It is almost needless to dilate on the feebleness of theosophy in supplying motives for virtuous conduct. Discouragement must be the effect of the discovery that the law of reward and punishment does not work with uniform exactness. In any case, for whom does a theosophist conceive he is struggling and striving in the pursuit of virtue? For himself, we are told, in another term of existence. But is he not virtually striving for another? in whom he does not feel a particle of interest? In each successive incarnation, he has no recollection of previous incarnations, and consequently, he has virtually changed to another person. Then think of the prospect of such a series of isolated lives closing in real or virtual annihilation. The motive derived from eternal happiness has, therefore, no place in theosophic morality. Christianity, on the other hand, does present such an inducement to virtuous conduct, not to speak of motives of a higher and more ennobling order, which it is constantly holding out to the more generous-minded, whereas the motives of theosophy are shadowy and illusory. Imagine the case of a man who is drawn to sin for pleasure, with all but irresistible force. What a tremendous horsepower of theosophic motive must he stand in need of to offer any resistance to temptation? On the other hand, the man who wallows in vice need be in no particular hurry to better his moral condition. He has plenty of dime on his hands, for his present incarnation is not his last. But what about the wonderful powers supposed to be possessed by certain theosophists? We are gravely told that when one has reached the higher grades of theosophic perfection, or has become a master or a mahatma, the divine or spiritual element is so perfectly developed in him that he obtains a complete control over nature's forces. In the twinkling of an eye, he can pass from one side of the globe to the other. He can make things travel through the air with the speed of thought. But are there any such Mahatmas in existence? We are assured that they are somewhere in the mountains of Tibet, and certain leading theosophists tell us that they have had communication with them and have caught something of their power. They are not unwilling to exhibit their wonderful skill. They will restore at a moment's notice a long-lost brooch, or whisk through the air a beautiful vase of flowers all the way from India. What are we to think of these marvels? Many of them, fortunately, have been investigated by experts, with results exceedingly damaging to the supposed wonder workers. The Society for Psychical Research, which numbers among its members many of the leading thinkers and specialists of Europe and America, appointed some years ago a committee of inquiry having at its head Dr. Richard Hodgson, who had himself strong leanings to occultism and entertained a favorable opinion of Madame Blavatsky, 
He traveled to India, saw things for himself, and laid the evidence collected before the committee whose full endorsement it received. The following are extracts from Dr. Hodgson's report. I finally had no doubt whatever that the phenomena connected with the Theosophical Society were part of a huge fraudulent system worked by Madame Blavatsky with the assistance of the Coulombs and several other confederates, and that not a single genuine phenomenon could be found amongst them all. Proceedings of 8 PR, page 210. My lengthy examination of the numerous array of witnesses to the phenomena showed that they were, as a body, excessively credulous, excessively deficient in the powers of common observation, and too many of them prone to supplement that deficiency by culpable exaggeration. Page 210. We think that Madame Blavatsky has achieved a title to permanent remembrance as one of the most accomplished, ingenious, and interesting impostors in history. Page 207. No wonder that later theosophic miracles have been regarded with suspicion or have been proven impostures. Theosophy, therefore, has failed to accredit itself as a body of doctrine. It fails to unravel the mystery of human suffering. It is a feeble prop to virtue and a no less feeble deterrent from vice. Its miraculous sideshow is a hoax. We have said thus much on the subject partly because theosophy is in many points typical of modern systems of morality in which a personal god is discarded. End of section 94. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.